Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we'll discuss the latest COVID-19 stimulus package and other legislation making its way through Congress with AAF President Douglas holtz Doug, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. How have you been the last few weeks? Oh, things are going great. Uh, and now it's uh, pretending to be summer in the middle of uh, early March. So that's a big, uh, big change. It's been tough working inside this week. I'll tell you that with looking at my app and seeing 70 degree weather. Uh, <laughs> anyways, the big news of the week is, of course, Congress passed the $1.9 trillion so-called COVID-19 stimulus package. It's on President Biden's desk. He's expected to sign it into law tomorrow. And I'll note this is the first COVID-19 relief package passed without Republican support. We've talked about the various provisions in the bill uh, and the current economic situation, but I want to take a longer view for this conversation. First, many are concerned about adding nearly $2 trillion in new spending to an already $4 trillion or so federal government that, that they already passed last year. What are the top line fiscal concerns here and do they have merit? Well, I think the top line fiscal concern is that we had a rule of thumb, which I think was embraced on all sides, uh, which was spend what you need to to protect the public from the virus and to support the economy during uh, the pandemic and, and begrudge none of those deficits. And, and that was the right, I think, the right thing to do. But that's not what this is. We know that a tiny fraction of this is really fo- uh, focused on COVID-19, and most of it is untargeted you know, money heading to pension plans or states and localities that are in no financial distress or people who are in no financial distress. And and that's that's wasting the taxpayers' money. It does make it impossible to use those same dollars for some other public purpose. And, and the Biden administration has some pretty pricey ones. Um, it adds it to the debt. And we have a, a record high level of debt relative to GDP. And so those are, those are genuine concerns. My biggest concern is that uh, a lot of the things in here that are being trumpeted by the Democrats are these two-year programs on earned income tax credit expansions, child tax credit expansions, child independent care tax credit expansions, uh, uh, Affordable Care Act expansions, that they have no intention of letting sunset in two years. And so one can think of those as permanent programs. And if you think of it that way, then you add about $4 trillion over the next 10 years to the bill. When he campaigned, uh, President Biden promised tax increases that were about $4 trillion over the next 10 years, which means that they could pay for those new permanent programs, raise taxes by $4 trillion, and not touch the existing problem. That's that's the issue, and that's mm-hmm. what I'm concerned about. Yeah, so as you mentioned, um, you started getting into my next question a little bit. The bill sets up these fundamental changes to long-term policy. You noted earlier this week on Fox Business that this bill is barring to set up new permanent programs. What permanent changes to the policy does this bill make? So it, it permanently bails out the multi-employer pension system. Right? It just says, write checks as necessary to pay benefits. And, and um, that's disappointing, not so much in the top line dollars, which are a lot, but they're in the tens of billions. And in a $2 trillion package, doesn't look like a big number. But but they set precedents that I don't like and policy precedents that are that are unfortunate. So there, there's that. The things that are not permanent, but they want to be, are all in the low-income support and especially the, t- the, the tax credits that I just ran through. 
earned income tax credit, child tax credit, child dependent care uh, tax credit, um, the premium tax credit, which is the subsidies in the Affordable Care Act. Those are all two-year expansions that they have every intention of bringing up a vote to make permanent just prior to the midterm. You know, this is just a political trap laid for Republicans. And, you know, that that's a lot of money uh, if those become permanent. Yeah. So you mentioned the multi-employer pension part of this bill. You know, it's essentially a bailout of the multi-employer pensions. I saw AAF's Gordon Gray discuss his concerns on Yahoo Finance yesterday. What is going on here? So it has been well known that the multi-employer pension system. So this is a pension system, uh, for example, if you're a truck driver and, and you work for multiple companies, all of them contribute to the pension system. So that's why it has the label multi-employer uh, pension system. Th this pension system has been badly underfunded and, and been identified as a problem for a long time. And uh, Gordon Gray has written extensively on this topic over the past three years, first documenting the scale of the problem, which is big. So too few contributions, over promises on benefits. It's a great way to solve a, a union dispute, promise a big pension increase, don't do the money up front. Then some companies leave, and now the, the ones that are left are holding the bag. And, and there's been a set of bad incentives that put it in, in terrible financial shape. And so how do you solve such a problem? Well, it would be great if you could just toss money in from out of the heavens. But what has been going on instead has been, OK, we know that the, the employers have to put in more money. That's bad news for them. But let's, what, what's the appropriate piece there? We know that the, the retirees aren't going to get what they're promised when they retire. So what's the appropriate scaling back of the, of the benefits? And how much taxpayer money should be put in here in the interest of, of uh, um, keeping the, the plans afloat? Th those are hard questions, but that's everybody contributing something. And that's the process that has been going on for a number of years. And they were very close. Now they've just written the check. Employers get off scot-free. Terrible incentive, right? We just send the message to employers. Set up a pension plan. Do not fund it. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. the, the retirees get everything they were promised, even though they were unrealistic promises, and the taxpayers left holding the bag. It's it's not a good situation, in my view. Yeah, I mean, is Congress just setting up taxpayers to bail out private companies again in the future? I mean, what kind yeah. of incentives does this set up here? This is terrible incentives. I mean, this is you know everything you worry about as a policy analyst, which is oh sure, you think you're getting rid of this just once, but you're you're setting the precedent that allows you know someone else to say, hey, you did that, and even worse, put themselves in a position where they don't actually put in the money they're supposed to and get to say, go do that. And of course, the poster child for the next big problem is the states, which have real big pension problems. And, and so far, every administration in Congress has drawn the line and not actually um, uh, opened the door to supporting those state programs. And I'm worried that this sets the precedent they will. Mm -hmm. Taking a little bit of a larger view here, what does this private pension bailout suggest for how Congress will deal with its own longstanding fiscal challenges? Social Security, for example, it's punted on making the structural reforms necessary to make it sustainable for decades. Will Congress just wait until it's bankrupt and do a last minute bailout? You're not going to have to wait long to find out the answers, though. The, the Medicare trust fund, the, the so-called uh, hospital trust fund uh, for inpatient hospital care, uh, was slated to run out of money in about four years. That was prior to the, the pandemic recession. Presumably that's worsened its finances, although a lot of care didn't happen because of COVID. So it's not obvious to me, but suppose it's four years. Well, that means that reasonably you, before the next presidential election, Congress will have to do something. And do you hear anyone talking about the Medicare problem? No. Do you hear anyone saying, you know, 
maybe it got into trouble not because the payroll taxes are too low, but because we're not managing the, these costs effectively. We have big cost problems in the healthcare system. That's pretty easy to imagine. But there are none, no such discussions going on. And it makes me think we're going to tiptoe up to it and let's toss the money in. That's a big concern for me because, you know, Social Security stacked right behind this. And that's a, an important part of the retirement uh, social safety net. It's, it's the pillar of uh, retirement income. And it's going to take time and a lot of effort to get that reform. We need to start now. Yeah, it sounds like lawmakers and policymakers have a lot of work to do to get that house in order. Let's move on to some of the other legislation Congress is debating because they are talking about other things other than COVID-19 right now. One bill we're starting to hear about again is the Protecting the Right to Organize or the PRO Act. AAF's Isabel Soto just put out a piece reminding us about the economic concerns with this policy. She wrote a piece, I think, a year ago in January about this and just recently wrote a reminder piece. Before we get into the problems, would you walk us through exactly what this bill does? So the PRO Act is a collection of provisions that doesn't have any special coherence. It's a collection of provisions, all of which change the balance of the employer-employee relationship in, in some way. So, for example, the bill preemptively outlaws right-to-work states. So there are 28 states out there that have right-to-work laws uh, that say that you don't have to join a union, you don't have to pay the dues. Uh, this would preempt that, those state laws. So that's a pretty sweeping thing in and of itself. It comes back to uh, what has now become a, an old reliable controversy on the, quote, joint employer standard. So uh, this is uh, shows up in a lot of places, but the most visible is, is franchises. So all those McDonald's franchises out there, or pick another franchise uh, if you like, who do those employees work for? Well, currently they work for the particular franchise in which they show up and, and do their job because they have direct control over their, their work hours and their work tasks and things like that. This would change that standard to direct or indirect control. And because the McDonald's in handing out its franchise uh, branding asks that franchises meet certain standards of quality and um, presentation, that's considered indirect control of what the employees do. It would make McDonald's liable as an employer for everything that goes on in every McDonald's. That's a sweeping change and would allow unions to organize all of the, the franchises simultaneously. And that's the real goal of this. So. You have the joint employer standard, and that, that would change a lot of things. It also simply um, uh, changes the criteria for classing, classifying someone as an employer versus an independent contractor. You know, Right now, essentially, the standard is that you're an independent contractor. Unless we prove that, we are running your life like an employee. We tell you what to do and we you know, dictate the, the hours and all that stuff. This just sort of flips the presumption. Uh, there's a, a test called the ABC test where you go through a three-pronged test. But the real issue is you're going to be considered an employee unless you can prove absolutely that you, you, you're you independent of this um, uh, company. If you survey independent contractors, only 10% of them wish they could be employees. They want to be independent contractors. And so this is a violation both of what they want, plus it's a big expense to the business community because now all of those independent contractors have uh, rights to benefits and rights to employer employee protections that are in the law. So it, it's an enormously um, uh, sweeping and invasive piece of legislation designed to produce more union work, work, uh, labor in the United States. For that reason, it's been controversial since it, it first showed up. And, and again, they will uh, pass it in the House and send it over to the Senate. And it seems unlikely it will get 60 votes in the Senate and won't we'll, we'll pass again. 
Yeah, I had a question about that later. But yeah, she mentioned in her piece that it was basically the same bill. So it didn't get bipartisan support before. So it's unlikely to get it now. Yeah, I think the right way to think about this is this is a message vote. And, uh, you know, unions supported the Democrats uh, in the last election nearly uniformly. And, and they wanted the vote on their bill and they got it. Yeah, there are some, you know, economic concerns with this as well that Isabel noted in her insight that the PRO Act would weaken workers' flexibility and control over employment options and add significant and wide-ranging costs. Can you just explain those concerns a little bit more in depth? Well, I mean, the flexibility, just think of the right to work preemption, right? Okay, so now you don't have the option of joining uh, a union or not. You've taken away your freedom to make that decision. If you're an independent contractor, we're going to say, no, you're you're an employee. Well, okay, your flexibility just went away. The whole point of being an independent contractor is to have control over your work schedule, when you work, how much you work, who you work for. That's now gone. We've made you an employee. So as you think through those provisions, all of them are designed to uh, make it the case that you belong to a union. So that that's a set of uh, obligations and lack of flexibilities, and it negotiates on your behalf what you're going to get with the employer and there's not a lot of flexibility in any of that and so it really is a big change in the work environment hmm. another bill that af has been discussing recently is the clean future act what is this bill about so this is the leading edge of the climate initiative that president biden promised was his uh top policy concern when he took office and uh, this is a bill that is currently in the energy and commerce committee in the house of representatives it is not something that you can do in quote reconciliation. So you're not going to see a fast track. This is going to be, we would like Republicans and Democrats to support this initiative on climate. And, and so the whole initiative has not yet been fleshed out. So you can't really give the entire vision. But you can see from this bill that they're interested in taking a sector by sector approach to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So you can think of the transportation sector and cafe standards for cars, moving people toward electric, things like that. I uh, can think of um, the household sector and you know energy efficiency standards for all your appliances and, and things like that. You can do the same thing in manufacturing for boilers. But the heart of it then is going to be the electricity sector because it's going to be powering the cars and everything else. What are they going to do with electricity? And and the, the, the open question they have is this thing called the um, clean electricity standard. It is literally that, a standard says, in, by particular dates, you have to have a certain fraction of the electricity generation in the United States be renewable um, uh, sources, solar, wind, things like that. And that sounds like a, a heavily regulated operation, right? We're going to go 10, 15, 20 till we get to 100% zero em uh, emissions by 2035. But inside that is the potential for some flexibility in how you meet that, right? As long as the, the aggregate is, is hitting the totals, you individually don't have to have 10, 15, 20, whatever the standard is that year, if you have the ability to buy credits from someone else who's got a little extra, they're at 30%, you buy their, their, their credits so that you can get up to the standard. And that trading allows the people who can get to the standard the easiest to be the first ones there. That's, that's cheap for the, the country and reduces the expensive reductions that are, that are, that are not taking place elsewhere. So, that's a standard setup for like a cap and trade program for anything where you want to minimize the economic cost of hitting the standard. My hope is that that is uh, if, if we go down this path, that we have that kind of flexibility in, hit, in hitting the standard, that will be a good way to minimize the economic cost.
cost. Then there's the open question whether the standard itself is reasonable. There are many people who just say there is no way we're going to get to zero emissions by 2035. And if the aggregate's unhittable, then there's not going to be anything available to trade. And then we have a big problem. That's that's yeah. the cost. Yeah. So I wanted to plug your recent economic column here where, you know, you asked the question, is the Clean Future Act good economic policy? So seems like up in the air a little bit. That's the question. Yes. <laughs> it's often posed that, you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions and economic growth have to be at odds with one another. This is a, a fundamental conflict. And weirdly, the environmentalists, environmentalists seem to believe this more than anyone. But But there's tons of evidence that if you have a well-designed uh, and efficient upstream carbon tax, and you use the revenue from it to cut other taxes on capital labor, so payroll taxes or corporate income taxes or however you want to configure it. If you do that, so if you do that in a revenue-neutral fashion, you can reduce emissions and keep growing. And so that's the gold standard. That doesn't seem to be on the table. So how close to the gold standard can we get? Yeah. So speaking of what's on the table, I mean, is Congress realizing that it has to introduce some market incentives into climate policy or is the clean energy standard really just going to be a mandate? And that's what they're looking at doing. That's a good question. Um, And I don't know the answer. I know that during the campaign, if you looked at the materials that the Biden campaign provided, they talked about a lot of government spending. We'll just spend money on good things and green things and it's all going to be good. They talked a lot about mandates requiring people to do things, and they had a just a little note that Congress will have to have a, a price-based enforcement mechanism. There's some phrase like that, which means they know. They know you can't literally mandate your way to a solution or, or, or spend your way to a solution. question is, has Congress got the joke yet? I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to keep watching all that. We have a little bit more time today. So one final question. Is there any other legislation you're keeping an eye on? Any other policy making its way through that you're keeping an eye on right now? Well, I think there are you know, two things out there right now. One is this sort of notion that somehow we're going to turn away from the domestic policy agenda and do a, a bill on China. And that, that's been floated in the past couple of days. I found that a bit surprising. I mean, thought about it. I can understand why they might think of this as a chance to demonstrate bipartisanship, because there's a fairly universal concern over China's strategic intentions, its economic intentions, and its treatment of its uh, citizens. So, you know, you could get bipartisan support for for some piece of China legislation. That seems like a, a reasonable proposition to me. So maybe that's it. Maybe that's why we're doing that. But it seems odd to pivot to foreign policy at this moment. Uh, and then the other thing that I'm watching is is what will be the next domestic policy piece. Um, you know, they had talked about doing two reconciliation bills. First one was this American Rescue Plan, then moving on to infrastructure, moving on to uh, other priorities, infrastructure, climate and the like. Uh, now we're getting mixed signals on how that's going to play out because um, the House Budget Chairman, John Yarmouth, said, well, next reconciliation bill, we probably won't start till July, which means the deadline's the August recess. Nothing will get done until they back up against the recess. And the House chairman of the Transportation Committee said, well, we're going to do infrastructure in regular order. We're not going to use reconciliation. So that was a bit of a surprise. So, you know, I've got my eye on that because I don't fully understand what's going on. I I hear people banding about huge numbers, $4 trillion and things like that. But that doesn't line up nicely with a real casualness about doing reconciliation and the idea that that'll go in regular order because, you know, 
it, it's always a mistake to make a prediction, but $4 trillion is not going to pass in regular order. I mean, that number is, is just unrealistic. Yeah. Large. Yeah. Seems like stuff we will all be watching at AAF and continue to talk about over the next couple of months. Yep. Doug, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.